Welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. Lindsay, we are watching one of your tapes. What did you pick out for us? I chose the classic You've Got Mail starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. They're, um, well, really their third team up if you, uh, count Joe versus the Volcano. But, um, the second time that the two of them have been in a Nora Ephron film together, more famously, Sleepless in Seattle, yes. is kind of a, uh, considered a high water mark for romantic comedies. It's considered one of the best, I'm pretty sure. And I, I think the, the thing that's kind of funny to me, because I, I personally prefer You've Got Mail, and we'll go over reasons why later, but I, I feel like a Sleepless in Seattle is held up as kind of one of the gold standard for Ron. Yeah, you know, I think that You've Got Mail is a film that it came out in 1998, Mm -hmm. kind of as the internet was starting to really enter the collective consciousness, Mm -hmm. and they went with sort of an unfortunate title. I think that this is a movie that (laughs) it sort of dated itself right off the bat by calling itself You've Got Mail, which of course is what... AOL used to greet you with when you uh, signed in on your dial-up and got some email. Do you yeah. think? Do you think the current generation would understand that reference? Cause it's I... a, it's an odd way. It's an odd way of saying that. I feel like people our age, like in their twenties, would get it. In kids in high school right now, I'm not so sure. Maybe they know. It's kind of interesting because I feel like when they made this movie, they thought that some of those trappings would be timeless because I feel like the late 90s things felt so modern the millennium was coming uh, the millennium was coming up and it's just AOL was the gateway to the internet it was the way people understood how you access the internet like that was the portal everyone used so that's where I feel like when they picked you've got mail I think they thought of as being completely ubiquitous and not really realizing that it would go out of fashion there was one trailer at the beginning of this tape it was for the soundtrack, which was kind of fun to see. Those were always the best ads on VHS tapes. In Sean's opinion. They literally say, get the You've Got Mail soundtrack on CD or cassette. I love that it's and available on cassette. This is the most eclectic group of artists I've ever heard <laughs> on a soundtrack. Because there's kind of newer stuff like the Cranberries. But then there's also like Bobby Darren and Harry Nilsson, Louis Armstrong, Stevie Wonder. Like it's a, it's really like such a strange, like just cluster of crazy different artists from different Mm -hmm. eras and uh, just intercut with really charming scenes of the movie and, you know, typing on laptops and laughing. Um, really the only, I think it's like the second time a soundtrack was advertised. The only other time was, um... That other great romantic comedy, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Oh, that's right. And you Turtles knew, you in knew, Time. He knew that you had to get that soundtrack. I cannot remember a single uh, number from that. This movie really could have only come out at exactly this moment, I yeah. feel like. It's worth mentioning that it's in a way sort of... Well, I guess it's adapted from the same stage play... Yeah. As the 1940 Jimmy Stewart movie, Shop Around the Corner. Yeah, which is a darling movie. Yeah, it's a very cute movie. Um, 
which this shares some things in common with. Kind of the bare bones of the plot. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I made Sean watch that, too. (laughs) I was all for watching it. I'm a big Jimmy Stewart fan. I mean, the general premise of You've Got Mail is that you have these two professionals kind of warring in business, and it just so happens that they're communicating anonymously by email. They've fallen in love over email, Um, even though they've fallen into great hate for each other in real life. And it's kind of through this weird discovery of each other, they end up finding love in real life, too. And you kind of have a similar premise for uh, Shop Around the Corner, the Jimmy Stewart film. Yeah, Shop Around the Corner, they both work for the same department store. Yeah, but they don't get along in their jobs. Although this is quite a bit different in the sense that uh, Tom Hanks's character, Joe Fox, mm-hmm. is um, kind of the scion to this enormous sort of Barnes and Noble type mega book store chain. Wholesale Wholesale books, books called uh, Fox and Sons. Yeah, yeah Fox and Sons. Fox and Sons. He's the third generation in this, in this big company of book wholesalers. And in contrast to that, Meg Ryan's character, um, Kathleen Kelly, has this twee little uh, children's bookstore. Yeah. Very much like a mom and pop business that she inherited from her mom. Mm-hmm. Kind of that little business that's being threatened by yeah. that. The big behemoth. Well, it's kind of interesting because it's this like giant corporate America. None of the staff know anything about books. They're just there to make money. And you can see they show Tom Hanks in the office with his father and grandfather. None of them care at all about reading or the product that they're actually selling, which kind of feels like Jeff Bezos and Amazon. But but you have Kathleen Kelly, Meg Ryan, who's just absolutely a lover of books, and especially of children's books. She knows everything inside and out. It's kind of funny because the movie takes this turn where at the beginning, when they're building up the Fox books, everyone around her knows that it's a big threat, but she's kind of convinced, no, we offer something special. We're really unique. We're really involved in the community. They can't defeat us we'll just kind of be partnered whatever books we don't have they'll have and they'll send customers our way when they don't have something and everybody else is going oh god you're naive well in real life tom hanks and meg ryan are fighting over each other's bookstores online there they have kind of this sweet back and forth and Mm -hmm. uh tom hanks is actually advising her to fight against this you know, unknown threat, which is actually him. And some of the best material in the movie, I feel like, is sort of in their conversations back and forth over AIM and... uh, Which is funny, because you take something that's really... could be really awkward, because they're having to narrate as they type, but it feels really natural, and you feel like you're just kind of in it with them. Yeah, it's worth mentioning just how great their chemistry is, because... Mm -hmm. What's funny is, I'm going to agree with you that this is a better movie than Sleepless in Seattle. I think that this film just gets a bad rap because it ha- it is dated, whereas Sleepless in Seattle, the plot of it is a little more timeless. Yeah, I, I would argue that this isn't that dated, though, because you can really sort of take the issues in this movie and slap it on our own time. It just changed change the figures in it a little bit yeah i but i think some of the trappings i mean starting with the title and the the use of aol and the really lame looking opening sequence yeah the opening credits of this movie have sort of a 
early CG kind of cartoon New York that you float through and it becomes like a computer screen. Yeah. It's just sort of, you know, unfortunate touches like that kind of hold it back. But one of the things that's odd to me about Sleepless in Seattle is that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan don't share any screen time together. Not until you know? the end. Well, there's like a brief moment where they see each other across the street. And that's when he falls for her. It's love at first sight kind of thing. Which, you know, if if someone had told me about these two movies, you know, Sleepless in Seattle, which is considered this enormous classic of the genre, and you've got Mail, which is kind of, sadly, I think, largely forgotten, I would have thought that Sleepless in Seattle was the one where they're constantly having all this, like, great banter together. Yeah. And I would have thought that You've Got Mail is the one where they never actually interact face-to-face. I would have just assumed that this is a movie where they're typing to each other the whole movie. But it's really the opposite. Part of the reason Sleepless in Seattle has gotten so much notice is that it does succeed in developing this relationship between two people who really don't meet until the very end. And it's pretty successful in that. I I just really like their chemistry, and you get to enjoy that in You've Got Mail. The chemistry of the leads is so important in, I mean, obviously in in a romantic comedy. And I think that that kind of kills it for me in Sleepless in Seattle, the fact that they don't really have any time together. Yeah. I think one of the other things that I like about this movie is it takes the trope of... Two characters who hate each other, but then they fall in love. And it normally it's really kind of annoying. I've seen so many different rom-coms do this. And it's it's kind of like you don't really believe in the, in the end that they could fall in love and have a happy relationship because they don't get along at all. But in this, it establishes that they have, they actually have an emotional connection. They have interests in common because they get along so well over their email exchanges that they would transition from being enemies to being good friends and lovers. This is very much a 90s romantic comedy, kind of a golden age for these sort of movies where, you know, there's the stakes aren't super high. I mean, yeah. in this case, it's two kind of really rich, uh, kind of bourgeois sort of uh-huh. people. The question that's up in the air is like, will they be, you know, will they be rich and happy and cultured by themselves or together, you know? I know. But I think that that's, I'm saying that as like a good thing. Like that's such a quaint thing. And I don't think that, I mean, I have theories about why the rom-com died out. 9-11. But, but, you know, it's kind of sad because I really enjoy movies like this that, you know, there was, there was such a glut of them in the 90s. I mean, yeah. you know, so many stars kind of built their entire careers during this era. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I think of Tom Hanks. I mean, we watched Big on this uh, show, too. And it's just, he built his career on these really sweet, heartwarming movies that would be sort of laughable and not really taken seriously now. And this is something that you've talked about quite a bit on and off the show. It's just sort of the decline of the romantic comedy. What What do you think about the state of this genre now? I don't really like many recent rom-coms. I think, I think too many of them make this point of having Katherine Heigl ones do this, where it's, uh, you have a successful woman that's just so high-strung, she can't handle her success, and so she needs to be taken down a notch by some kind of cheeky guy that she hates, and he hates her, but then in the end they're in love, and you don't believe it. And it's just, it's, I, I've seen that so many different times, and it's 
kind of like get a new idea. But what, what would you say is the last really good rom com? Was oh, it man. like Bridget Jones' Diary or Bridget Jones's Diary is good. I didn't like the sequel. It's just odd to me that this this is such a popular genre. You know, women are half or more of movie-going audiences, and yet, yeah. like, we're so bereft of this kind of, you know, sweet-natured movie. I'm wondering if the, if we've just changed as a culture. I, th- I think, in part, Hollywood's approach to movies has changed. Like, they've overcomplicated them. Kind of big rom-coms you're seeing now are these ensemble casts, which Love actually succeeded in doing really, really well, but then you get stuff like Valentine's Day, where it's just... You're sort of popping in and out of different people's lives. It's all very superficial. It doesn't end up really doing much. Those movies look dreadful. They're not good. (laughs) I mean, I think that those are just easy to do because they can bring in stars for like a couple days to film these sort of vignettes and then stitch them all together. What was there, like New Year's Eve also is another one of those? Yeah, and that's another one. And it it kind of bugs me because it's like this superficial content is what Hollywood thinks women want, I guess. Although, I mean, if they look at the success of the Hunger Games and stuff, they know women are back in that, so. When I think of the the perfect romantic comedy, I think of When Harry Met Sally. Oh, God, like, that's, that's a good one. Like, that's probably my favorite, if I had to pick one. And I think that a lot of the things that I like in that are in this as well, where you sort yeah. of follow... It focuses on two people and kind of charts the ups mm-hmm. and downs of their relationship over like a period of time. Yeah. It helps to be said on the East Coast, I think, for whatever reason. There's sort of a charm to New York and these sort of stories, I feel like. Yeah. It's not a it's not a necessity, but I think that it definitely yeah. helps. I'm racking my brain on a recent one. I mean the proposal was pretty good and for all I complained about successful women needing to be taken down a notch, that's what that movie is. Isn't that is. exactly what that movie is about? But it's Sandra Bullock, so I'm slightly forgiving of it. It's not it's not perfect, but it's you're it's, saying that you want to see Sandra Bullock taken down a peg. No. <laughs> but the proposal at least entertained me. It didn't anger me and or upset me like leap year and the awful truth i think we've just become so cynical is it I the mean, awful truth or the ugly truth i think it's called the ugly truth oh it's, the ugly truth oh it's an fits, ugly movie i mean it's a really mean-spirited movie as i understand i didn't actually yeah. see it but i feel like there's kind of a rise of these ugly mean-spirited movies And it's like that you feel, maybe, you know, ironically, it might also be because of the rise of the internet, which is what this film is sort of about. I feel like another thing that I sort of see in modern romantic comedies is, well, it's two things. One, if it's aimed at women, then it's all about weddings. Like, I feel like there's been a spike in just Uh. movies. And granted, we had things like My Best Friend's Wedding and things, uh, things like that, but... They, they weren't all... Like, in the 90s, not all rom-coms were focused on weddings. I don't know. Runaway Bride, My Best Friend's Wedding. There were, Usually okay, there it were involved a, lot of a them. wedding, they got married, and then... But think about the... Think about, you know, recent ones. I feel like they're all either about the a wedding, or they focus on, almost entirely on the guy, you know? Like, I feel like... There's sort of a rise in sort of, like, guy-centric yeah. romantic comedies, which some of them are pretty good. Like, I like 500 Days of Summer, but that's it's, sort of its own thing. I think it's because partly they're trying to make them appeal, like, make it so that you could make it a date movie, like your boyfriend will want to go see it with you or something. But that's when you end up with mo- uh, with movies like the Jason Bateman 
Jennifer Aniston movie where he switches the sperm and impregnates her with her ch- uh, with his child when she gets in vitro fertilization because he's mad at her. He you commits know I mean? a sex crime, basically, yeah. is the plot of that yeah. romantic and comedy. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I mean, that's that's how I feel about modern romantic comedies to a T, is like the plot of that movie. They're just sort of like really ugly and casually mean-spirited and like they're so afraid of being perceived as sincere and actually believing in in you know the institution of love and relationships that they just come off as just ugly it's funny because it's one of my favorite genres yet it's got some of the movies that i hate the most like maid of honor m-a-d-e maid of honor is that with uh dreamy uh mcdreamy (laughs) Patrick Dempsey. Why do yeah. I know that? That's his name. <laughs> it's like, that's a terrible movie. It's all about how he's a horrible person and never noticed this woman in his life until she was going to get married. And then he decided, oh, I want her. And so she ruins her marriage to a guy that just happens to be kind of dorky because he's Scottish. Like, that's the only bad thing about him. He's otherwise a pretty good person. And then, I mean, I'm just now just thinking of other recent ones. There were two that had identical plots. The Ashton Kutcher, Natalie Portman one, No Strings Attached, Mm -hmm. which was awful. It was really uh, bad. I mean, and and again, just kind of a mean movie, like kind of a cruel movie. And uh, the one with Justin Timberlake and Mia Kunis, that was slightly better, but still just kind of... Something's off about it. Like, they've lost the the secret potion to make, like, a really sweet romantic comedy. I think because they've forgotten that it's supposed to make you feel good. You shouldn't spend a lot of the movie hating the characters on the screen or being frustrated by them. Like, to get back to the movie at hand, you've got mail. You're rooting for both of them through Mm -hmm. the entire movie. You don't dislike either of them. They're being mean to each other, but they don't actually intend to hurt or harm each other in any way it's kind of just a snappy banter like they're very witty and it's it's that sort of thing the meanest it gets is the scene that it shares with um jimmy stewart's shop around the corner the scenes are actually almost identical it's kind of crazy watching them back to back but um that's the only time he gets really mean and it Tom Hanks provokes Meg Ryan in that scene, so he kind of deserves some of that mean stuff that she says that pretty much implies he's a soulless, heartless son of a bitch. Yeah, the scene that's that the two movies share is this scene where Tom Hanks finally convinces uh, Meg Ryan to meet up with him, but he goes along with a friend. This happens in both versions. In this case, it's uh, his token black friend, Dave Chappelle. <laughs> in this world of white New Yorkers, a lone yeah. Dave Chappelle is the only black person. And he has his friend kind of peek through the window just to, yeah. just to let him know if, you know, does she seem all right? Do you know what she looked like? In both versions, he, he has sort of this line where it's like, you know, who it kind of looks like is uh, Kathleen. In fact, he looks exactly like her. It is her. And so he sort of goes into this meeting knowing he knows well before she does Mm -hmm. the the true identity of his uh, AOL pen pal. AOL pen pal. (laughs) You know, yeah, but you you keep making it sound so dated. I think about it and it's like in, in the Jimmy Stewart one, they were 
P.O. Box pen pals. That's how they didn't know who the other was. There was a classified ad in the newspaper. And you've got mail in the behind-the-scenes footage. We found out that they actually met in a chat room on her birthday, which is not said in the movie. Yeah, well, the movie opens and they've already been corresponding a while. Yeah. Which is a good decision because it just kind of gets things moving right away. But you could really kind of change this up and make the same movie, but just put them on... A dating website. I mean, I don't feel that it's necessarily super dated, but I think the reason that people don't hold it in as high of regard yeah. is that I think that the title is a big problem. Like, I, yeah. like if they just called it Shop Around the Corner, I think that this movie would have the legacy it deserves. Because I think it really is... Probably one of the stronger 90s romantic yeah. comedies. The The great irony of this movie is that they make Barnes & Noble and bookstores like it, like Borders, look so evil. Which I guess at the time people thought that, but now we have Amazon and Borders is dead. Barnes & Noble's yeah. doing okay. You could do the same thing, like the just the retail industry in general. Book, brick and mortar stores are on their way out. Yeah, I mean that's another aspect of it that's a little bit dated. It's just the fact that the sort of the big bad in this is brick and mortar bookstores, which, you know, <laughs> you, you, we wish that we had more of. I feel like if this was made today, you're right, it would be online dating and it would be an Amazon type store yeah. threatening like someone running a Barnes and Noble. Yeah. <laughs> the world has changed, but I think the sweetness of You've Got Mail is timeless. And like all of the best romantic comedies of this era, yes, we focus on two leads with great chemistry, but there's a great ensemble cast oh, going yeah. on. With Greg Kinnear, Parker Posey. Yeah, and that's an interesting element of this movie is we find out right away that these people are already involved in serious relationships. Yeah, but they let you know their relationships aren't that great. And this is sort of another thing that this movie has in common with Sleepless in Seattle is... Meg Ryan's character in that was, I think, even engaged to Bill Pullman. Yeah, I, I believe so. And she she drops him like a rock right before oh. running off to meet with, with Tom Hanks at the end of that movie. Well, he's a loser with food allergies, yeah. am I right? <laughs> That's his only fault as a character, is he's sick. He, he, he has to sleep with a humidifier. That's his entire problem, whereas... I feel like it's much more nuanced than this. She's dating Greg Kinnear, who's kind of this technophobe, who's kind of an, uh, you know, kind of self-absorbed. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point in the movie, they just kind of sit down and say, I don't really love you. And it's kind of mutual. And they've kind of figured out that they don't really belong together. And they yeah. kind of laugh it off. Where in Sleepless in Seattle, it's very strange because Bill Pullman is clearly in love with her. Aww. And they're supposed to get married, but at the end he's like, yeah, go get him. <laughs> it's like, Go get this man that you heard on the radio and then stalked and looked at him from across the street once. Yeah, her character <laughs> is a little hard to identify with in Sleepless in Seattle. Whereas in this, they're both, you understand their positions. Like, he... He's not just this evil yeah. corporate shill that's threatening her tiny business. Like, he, I mean, he has his own outlook on yeah. things. And so they're both sort of sympathetic. And in the case of his significant other, Parker Posey, she's kind of just playing the character she yeah. plays in everything of just, like, this high-strung, high-maintenance person. Kind of like her character in Best in Show. But, again, there's kind of, like, this level of understanding that isn't really in Sleepless in Seattle. 
One one thing that we should note to give Sleepless in Seattle more credit, they they reference an affair to remember a lot in that movie, and I think it's kind of based on this premise of not just love at first sight, but like faded love, and you have to really like make that leap, and if you make that leap, then the movie really works. Yeah, I mean, I guess this movie is more of an opposites attract sort of story. Yeah. And a story about how you can you know, really be into someone on paper, but actually dealing with them in real life is Can another... Be different, yeah. Which I think there's definitely a lot to chew on there. One thing I, I find interesting about this movie is how starkly gendered it is. Like, Tom Hanks is really into The Godfather, and she just doesn't get it, and all the men... Like, she, she talks to Greg Kinnear about... Tom Hanks had told Meg Ryan to go to the mattresses and really t- get that fight going. And she had no idea where that was coming from. And he said, it's the Godfather. It's the Godfather. And she takes she takes that to Greg Kinnear and asks if he knows where it came from. And he says, yeah, of course. And she's just like, oh, what is it with men and the Godfather? But you have another, a, a few other things kind of like that where she's really interested in Pride and Prejudice and has read it she can't even count the number of times and he's trying to read it and it's not that interesting to him they really kind of mark out gender territory in this movie which is a little interesting like that it's also kind of man versus woman i'm really impressed with the way that nora efron um directs some of these scenes where they're just typing and there's just yeah. uh there's just voiceover narration um and there's just so many great things that just kind of make you smile, like the the passing of the seasons. There's a great line that Tom Hanks uh, says right at the beginning. I mean, sort of in the the autumn section of the movie when there's all these like fall carnivals and mm-hmm. things like that. And he has this great line that's, I love fall in New York. It just makes me want to go out and buy school supplies. <laughs> I think <laughs> the second he said that, I was that's like, yeah, really I'm really cute. on board with this movie. I like how we've gotten really rosy though and I remember because you said how much you liked the typing scenes yet I remember during one of them you were like no one does backspace like that that's not how you do it Tom Hanks well he was doing the pecking at the delete button that was one thing that seemed odd to me but that might be a generational thing I mean they even show a typewriter at one point and that Mm. got us talking about like well he probably learned how to type on a typewriter and you wouldn't just highlight and press delete I do remember you also took issue with the ending a little bit. Essentially what's going on is that Meg Ryan doesn't know yet that Tom Hanks is really her secret lover boy online. On space line. <laughs> um, they've Oh, and they've they've both broken up with their significant others. Yeah, so they're, they're free, free agents. Who promptly disappear from the movie along with really all of the uh, peripheral cast. characters. Along with Steve Zahn yeah. and They didn't really need Dave, Dave Chappelle. Chappelle. Yeah, yeah. After, after the first hour, Dave Chappelle was gone. Tom, Tom Hanks has this moment because he wants her to know who he is. And they've made arrangements to meet. And he kind of tells her as himself in person uh, before she's going off to meet her online lover kind of i wish we had met and you i wasn't fox and sons books and you weren't the shop around the corner and we could have had a real go at this kind of thing they have a sad moment and then she goes off to meet her lover and ooh la la it's tom hanks there were a couple things you didn't like about the ending including that Tom Hanks brought his dog during the great reveal and their choice of song. 
I there's a, there's things that I really like about the ending. She has this great line. I mean, I think that in a way, subconsciously, I mean, they've sort of become friends since he put her out of business, and yeah, she's she's clearly been warming to him anyway, and he. I think he slips up at one point when he's sort of nursing her back to health during one scene <laughs> where he says something that uh, he would say under his screen name. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a little odd that he shows up with his dog, but I guess that's a reference to something that he'd said earlier. Well, it's so she knows that it's really him because until that moment, until that final scene, she doesn't really know that Tom Hanks is New York... 129 or whatever his number <laughs> is but she knows that he had he had talked about Barkley and so bringing the dog and calling out Barkley is a sign that he's really the one that I mean I'm, I'm okay with that but I think ending with somewhere over the rainbow as a dog jumps on their kissing forms that I mean that's kind of cute but just the <laughs> choice of the song it doesn't really tie into anything for me like if this is a movie about like opposites attract and technology uh, in this crazy, like, late 90s world that we live in. Like, having mm. such a throwback and... I mean, to me, Somewhere Over the Rainbow doesn't really say anything about the movie. And I don't know, I'm a stickler for, like, what song you end on. Well, I kind of wonder if they picked that song because it's such kind of it's such a heavy technology for the time movie. And it's so focused on how they connected over the internet and so taking it back to kind of this supposed idea of a simpler era and older time especially like since the wizard of oz came out in 1939 and the shop around the corner with jimmy stewart was released in 1940 can kind of connect it over time to our current film yeah and i guess it was just sort of a thing in 90s movies to have a lot of older music like have a lot of 50s music i know that that happened a lot in sleepless in seattle Mm -hmm. you'd usually open with some sort of skyline shot of a city with like a 50s yeah. song i think we knew need we need to eventually have sleepless in seattle on this podcast so we can have sean give it another shot well i'm to be clear i don't hate <laughs> sleepless in seattle i'm just kind of baffled as to why someone would love that as much as when harry met sally like a genuine like great romantic comedy Whereas this kind of gets looked on as like, oh, this is kind of when they try to get the band back together. But it was, it was, it was just a weird AOL and Starbucks commercial. Like, I feel like that's kind of its place in the zeitgeist. And I think it deserves better. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where it, it's kind of interesting because it seems like gratuitous product placement. And it's definitely the case for Star- Starbucks. I think that was definitely some major product placement going on. Although... No, I I don't know. I don't really have a defense of that. Well, I feel like in the late 90s, that was really a buzz thing to talk about. It's like, wow, there's all these Starbucks all of a sudden. Like, that's a thing in Fight Club and, like, a a few different movies. That's true. But I was thinking again, like, for for AOL and for the name of it, AOL was the gateway to the internet. Like, that's how every, most people in America that had internet or home had dial-up we're accessing it through AOL I know my family did oh yeah we although di- Meg Ryan's connection is way faster than anyone else in the yeah, world her, she's on like super uh rich New York dial-up like that goes so fast that little for us it would just never end just go on forever I there was a moment this isn't super relevant but I remember going home in college 
And I'd had DSL in college, and then I'd get to my parents' house, and my mom's like, oh, yeah, you can just still sign up. Just use AOL. And I had to use dial-up at home, and it was so painful after having experienced real internet. I think we had dial-up all the way until, like, 2002 or 2003. <laughs> it's tough, tough life. Another thing that you had mentioned was one of the one of the messages that Tom Hanks sends is really long for instant messaging. And so kind of the way that they were interacting with the technology was still different than we do now, too. Even that, those sorts of trappings have changed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also important to keep in mind that these are people in their, would you say, 30s or 40s interfacing with the technology, whereas people of different generations interact with technology in different ways. I mean, we're talking, these are probably people that put a little hyphen for a nose in their smiley faces. Also, just, you know, AOL Instant Messenger, that was that was such a dominant form of talking to people. For oh, like, yeah. But for, but for just like a minute in time, just for like yeah. a few years, that was the way you would talk to your yeah. friends. And then, and then my friends and I got cool and we used Yahoo Messenger. I was never one of those kids. Oh, really? <laughs> I was. Do you think, do you think AIM still exists? Oh, yeah, probably. Do you think our old screen names would work if we just signed into them? Um, my AOL email address still exists. Oh, my God. I can log into it. Wow. AOL is still real, people. It's not dead yet. I'm not sure if you can call it strictly a romantic comedy, but um, I think of High Fidelity also, which was just a couple of years after this, and it sort of had a similar thing where... It's a small business, and you spend a lot of time with these really likable people that work with... Uh, the quirky Yeah, workers. like the Steve Zahn character in this is a lot like Jack Black in High yeah, Fidelity to me. definitely. And I think that's another charming thing about this movie is you spend a lot of time with, you know... There's your main characters, and then there's, like, the quirky co-workers, <laughs> which is another sort of endearing the, thing about this The quirky cast. co-workers who are constantly trying to convince her... They're, they mention uncomfortable things like cyber sex and uh, telling her that the guy that she wanted to meet didn't show up because he's the rooftop killer and that kind of thing. I think they're there to kind of play devil's advocate and yeah. ask this otherwise kind of sensible person, like, why are you talking to this strange guy online? Or I like the line of the the young girl that walks and works in the shop that's just like uh, talking about cyber sex and don't do it. They lose all respect for you. <laughs> 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 like the little lines like that where you can kind of learn a little bit about them and then Meg Ryan gets a chance to react. Yeah, I think this is an extremely well written and well directed romantic comedy, especially in little scenes like that. It sort of has that screwball comedy banter, mm-hmm. kind of the rapid fire, always having the right thing to say, those zingers yeah. that Tom Hanks mentions. I like that you mentioned screwball comedies, because this does really kind of harken back to the, the the era of screwball comedies, like really great ones like His Girl Friday, and It Happened One Night, just absolute classics with some of the snappiest dialogue you'll ever see on screen. All right, Lindsay. Well, this is your VHS copy of 1998's You've Got Mail. Mm -hmm. Do you buy it? Do you rent it? Do you tape over it? I buy it. I mean, 
I've watched this movie twice in the last six months, and I the second time I watched it, I was still totally enjoying it. Like, this is a movie that I really love to see. You have a lot of really great character development. It's really fun. It's kind of dated, but you, it's still relatable because you can kind of transpose everything onto issues of our own time. Um, and it's just cute. It's a really fun kind of snapshot of 1998. I'm also going to say buy it. I think that there's so few great examples of romantic comedies these days. And this, I mean, this is a cliche, but it's a really feel-good movie. And, mm-hmm. I, and I just can't really think of other examples of this that I've seen recently. And I think it's a great sort of time capsule of the era. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan have obviously great chemistry in this. Mm-hmm. The quote on the back of the VHS tape uh, from USA Today is, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan should win the Nobel Prize for chemistry. (laughs) But it's true. They have excellent chemistry. This whole cast is great. I think if you want to see a movie, I mean, we have friends that are really into the Russell Crowe movie A Good Year for kind of similar reasons. Like, it's just kind of like a light movie that you could really watch at any time and just feel good, like, about these rich people and their kind of featherweight problems Mm -hmm. and it's uh i don't know it's just a very charming movie i don't know losing your entire livelihood isn't a featherweight problem except that she ends up being a writer and getting a publishing deal right and selling that business i mean she owns that prime piece of real estate that's probably a few mil that she makes off that you assume that she owns it but maybe it was a lease well, no, because her mom started the business. Yeah, that's when, true. You know, it, I which don't. They think... never address her dad. Yeah, which is interesting. That was just totally left out, which they really didn't need to talk about it at all anyway. But I mean, this is sort of the way I look at it. It's like you're judging it against other movies of its type. Yeah. And I think, as far as romantic comedies go, this might be one of my very favorites. Oh, high praise from Sean Lynch. Although I sort of put romantic comedies with John Cusack in their own category. <laughs> That's kind of like its own genre to me because I've seen a lot of those. I know it's kind of funny. We we do bash a lot about current movies on this podcast, which isn't always fair. There are a lot of really good current, you know, more recent movies too. I think it's just a side effect of choosing movies from the past that we feel really strongly about. Yeah. And, you know, part of this is just feeling nostalgia. I mean, maybe a movie like this wouldn't work today. I mean, this movie is, in effect, a remake, but we've sort of been talking about what this movie would look like if it was done today. It would be about online dating, and it would be about an online retailer, and maybe it would just kind of lose that quaint sort of... I think the cast makes a big difference, though, too, because I feel like if this movie were made today, it'd star like Justin Timberlake and Stephanie. You're really going to care as much when it's not Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another thing that's sort of changed with modern movies is, like, there aren't really big stars anymore. I mean, there are, but there are, there's no, You've like... your Leos and stuff. Well, yeah, but I don't... They don't not, they don't really do films like this, you know? This is true. I can't really think of, like... Big stars that do lighthearted movies. Or maybe that's kind of a general statement. Matt Damon and Stuck on You. There you go. (laughs) Which is what we're doing next time. No. Um, What is is your choice for next time, Sean? Well, 
As I've mentioned previously, there was a bit of a tragedy. I tried to have an American werewolf in London on the podcast. Our VCR ate it up. Um, but friend of the show, Paul Murray, came to the rescue and gave me a brand new copy, a shrink-wrapped VHS copy of An American Werewolf in London. It's so really nice. So, um, forbidding any, uh repeat of the previous tragedy we will be doing in American Werewolf in London thanks to Paul. Unless our VCR decides to just protest werewolf movies in general. That's another genre where there's very few really good ones in my opinion but we can talk about that next time. Does Harry Potter count as a werewolf movie? Like if werewolves exist in the world is it a werewolf movie? Or does it have to star a werewolf? We can talk about that next time. I've got very definite ideas about that. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other shows on our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. We'd love to hear your feedback and see uh, some ratings and reviews on iTunes. You can also contact us by email at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on AOL Instant Messenger. No. Uh, uh, oh. Um, well, that's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time.